Welcome back to the Lasting Learning Podcast. This is Dave Schmidow here. I hope that you are all enjoying the summer learning series as we go through the book, It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. If you're brand new to this podcast, this summer we've been reading the entire book. Truly, I'm just giving you a free audio version of my book so you can have some conversations and dialogue and discussions with your coworkers, your peers, your family this summer. Summer's a great time for reflecting, sitting on the patio or at the beach or going on road trips and just listening to a podcast. So I thought, why not just share this with you? I'm not about trying to get rich off of it. So may as well just share it with you and let you do your own learning and uh, come across, come, come away with your own thoughts and your own reflections. And that's what it's all about. So if you are just now joining us, I encourage you to go back and get caught up We've read the introduction. We've read the first eight chapters. We are about to jump in on chapter nine. The real focus is is about how to encourage lifelong learning with our kids. It's not about just having kids learn to pass a test. It's not about having kids that become copycats. I've said um, we sell, we we hold kids accountable. We punish them when they copy off of their peers. Yet we celebrate when they copy off of us. And, you know, teachers administrators, leaders in schools, we need to set the example for our kids. We need to make sure that we're not guilty of the same thing. We can't just go to a conference or pick up a book and say, wow, that's the secret sauce. That's the magic pill. I'm going to do things that way and get the same results. We need to be reflective of what we do and why we do it. We can't just copy the teacher down the hall, but what we can do is we can learn from what others are doing and be innovators and make things even better. I mean, our kids deserve the absolute best that we can give them. So I'm hoping, if nothing else, whether you agree with everything in this book or disagree with everything in this book, that you're going to get engaged in the conversation. You're going to help us change and challenge the status quo and make things the best it can possibly be for our kids. I mean, their destinies truly depend on it. So without any further ado, we're going to jump into chapter nine. I encourage you, enjoy the ride. Go back and get caught up and join us soon. So here we go. Chapter nine, engagement or standards? Which is it? I've been blessed in my career to have done a number of things outside of my classroom and office. I've given presentations to a variety of audiences, sharing some of what I've learned about standards-based grading, assessment, and student engagement. Some of you may be reading the words in this book or listening to them in this podcast and thinking, I've heard this before. Great. That helps prove my overall point. You don't need this book to teach you anything. You were able to learn without reading about it. Maybe we talked at a conference recently. Maybe you sat in on one of my audiences. Maybe I've worked side by side with you. I also understand that reading may allow you to revisit concepts again or to have the time to to learn at your own pace. It also allows me to share my ideas or the ideas that I borrowed from others with an audience that may not have had the ability to hear them before. Aside from my ability to speak for audiences, I do some work for the accreditation agency known as Advanced Ed. With this responsibility, I've been able to work with some amazing educational leaders from around the world and visit some incredible schools and classrooms around the country. The work Advanced Ed does on these accreditation visits does not focus on identifying a school or school district's successes and failures. We believe that that's an internal process. 
The role of an accreditation team is to evaluate a system's process for self-assessment and reflection. Does a school system have its own process and procedures for examining what's working and what needs improvement? Does it have a way to determine how to grow and meet the needs of more students? In essence, is the system learning? It's not a question of pass or fail. It's a question of where the system is on its journey. Systems are neither good nor bad because they're all at different levels of development. Because systems are complex entities, we cannot simply identify a system comprising multiple individuals with varying experiences and roles as simply satisfactory or unsatisfactory. I've been on many external reviews, as we call these visits, where the school staff members didn't understand this, and they didn't understand what we were there to explore. We often get the red carpet treatment. Many places see this as a final exam, and they do all they can to just let us see their best and brightest, so that they can earn a passing grade and get a nice write-up in the local newspaper. They prep for days. They put their best foot forward so the team can see the result of all their hard work. As a team, though, we aren't all that concerned with the show we see. We're there to examine the evidence of a process that was put in place before our arrival, and one that will hopefully continue long after we leave. You know, we're all guilty, though, of putting on a dog and pony show like the one that like the ones that I've seen. A politician a few years ago described this as putting lipstick on a pig. We try to describe, disguise our struggles or flaws rather than address them. We mask what's really going on. Have you ever experienced something like this in your own classroom or school? If you're an administrator, do you ever see teachers putting forth tremendous effort to create an artificial show on observation day because they only want you to see a finished and polished product? They don't want you to see the man behind the curtain, just the magical wizard. How about your students? Are they expected to study for tests and quizzes every Thursday night because Friday's test day? Come Saturday, they can forget it all, but on the day of the big test, they better know it and show it. There's no push for endurance, no focus on the learning process, only a quest for short-term memory, a quick experience, and content regurgitation. What goes in must come out. The problem with this is that we're focusing only on producing results that are replicas of what we already know, and we'll never progress if that's the case. If that's all we put in, that's all we'll get out. We have strict trademark and copyright laws in America for a reason. Sure, we want to limit copycats for the sake of financial gain, but the laws go beyond trying to protect financial interests. By limiting replication in commercial and intellectual enterprises, we're also forcing innovation and creativity. When a law forbids others from simply stealing an idea, we're prompted to create something better. We cannot just accept what is and make it ours. We must take what is and make something new and better out of it. Similarly, many of you may decide to copy some of the ideas in this book. But what I really want is for you to try and discredit these ideas, or perhaps enhance them and find ways to do things better. When we can't copy, we must create. As teachers and educators, we will have a very difficult time getting our students to do something that we aren't comfortable doing ourselves. Creating is about risk-taking. We have to create new realities and try things nobody else has tried. We need to create creators, risk takers, people willing to change their destinies. We need to create students not intimidated by failure and the true learning process. But how can we teach students to do something that we ourselves don't know how to do? How can we get our kids to move beyond where we're able to take them? How do we create new thought? As teachers, we have spent our careers feeling comfortable being the smartest one in the room and encouraging our students to simply mimic what we already know. That way of teaching, however, simply isn't working. We need teachers to become facilitators of learning, not just keepers of knowledge. We need to become feedback providers, not graders and labelers. We need to encourage our kids to take what we give them and make it better. 
Standards-based grading and its cousin standards-based learning get a lot of attention from progressive educators today. Using the phrase coined by Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind, we want to know where our students are going before we start, start them on their journey there. The standards are the goal. What we want to teach them, or more specifically, what we want them to demonstrate evidence of learning, how we get them there is the art of teaching. As educators, it's our responsibility to measure student progress towards their goals. It's our job to measure our students. It's our job to move each of them forward and closer to seeing success. At the heart of these movements is the idea that teachers must learn how to interpret standards and to measure student work, commonly described as evidence against the standard. Some of you have heard me make a, a seemingly redundant statement. A standard is only standard if it's standard. I even made that statement earlier in this book. Whether I'm driving through Alabama or Michigan, I know that when I see a mile marker on the side of the road, I'll have to travel, travel 5,280 feet before getting to the next marker. No matter where I am in the country, the standard for measuring a mile is the same. It doesn't change depending on the weather, the state, or the car I drive. To help us have clarity and communication and expectation while driving, we must have a uniform method of interpreting measurement. This keeps us safe, allows us to understand our limits, and helps us predict a plan for what will come. The standard is not up for interpretation, but we do have tremendous latitude in how we use that standard for our own benefit. The same is true with the standards presented to teachers. Why is it, for example, that as we drive along interstates, we see mile markers, not foot or meter markers? Well, because it would be an extraordinary expense and a waste of resources, and we'd end up just littering the landscape with millions of such signs. Why do we have any signs at all to mark our progress? Why not just let all drivers figure out their own way to chart progress? Some may want to use kilometers, others yards, and others speed. There's a reason we're all asked to use a standard measurement. An inch is an inch on every ruler. When I was a kid, my goal was to grow up and be six foot one. I worshiped Joe Dumars on the Detroit Pistons. And according to my basketball cards, that was his height. I would measure myself often against a standard measurement looking at my progress. If I ever got to my ideal height, I'm only 5'10 today, I would not automatically stop growing just because that was my goal. I may continue to develop and grow and could still use my standard measurement to chart my progress. Being tall is not a standard, nor is being short. Those descriptors are what statisticians would call norm-referenced or subjective interpretations. They're relative. Tall and short are descriptive words that require a comparison to another object. Based on our opinions or comparisons, we make judgments. Using an explicit standard, not a subjective comparison, I was able to determine if I, was, if I met my goal. A teacher may privately label one child as smart and another as slow based on a, a, the relative nature of the two students, rather than on their ability to understand and articulate an individual learning target. To a child, someone who is six feet may seem impressively tall, but in the NBA, that six-footer would be deemed short. In a standards-based classroom, the goal is to have a constant measurement as free from personal bias as possible. This does not necessarily mean we're looking to eliminate teacher autonomy, creativity, or individualism. In fact, it's the opposite. The goal is to create objective measurements of learning, not of teaching. A standards-based classroom actually enhances a teacher's ability to be creative and free. The standard is the what, while the creativity of teaching is the how. What we test is what we teach. What we teach is what we value. Have you ever tried to question other teachers on their grading scales? grade weighting, or the classroom rules? Have you ever tried to debate some of the concepts presented earlier in this book, like relative due dates and retakes, and felt the tension in the room increase? 
I equate talking about grading and classroom norms with a teacher to talking politics and religion at the Thanksgiving dinner table with extended family. When you bring up certain topics, even in the most innocent and explanatory manner, you can be seen as questioning a person's values and priorities. This puts others on the defensive, feeling like their core is being challenged. Reread the first two sentences of the last paragraph. If you test it, you value it. Sure, we can argue that our students are over-tested. We can say that states and districts require us to test our students on things that we see little value in. Yet for some reason, we continue to do it. Many consider this something not worth fighting over anymore. Rebelling against the onslaught of testing could be a career suicide, and I'm in no way advocating for that. In fact, I see tremendous value in testing. We'll explore that later. What I'm saying here is simply that a test displays value. If a state or district mandates a test, it's saying the subject areas being tested are valuable, even if you personally disagree. If you as a teacher give up class time to test your students, you're implying that there's a value to specific content or skills. You're sacrificing time that could have been spent doing any number of other activities when you stop to administer a test. The problem is not that we're testing our students so much. The problem is that we don't all explicitly see the value that we are implying by doing so. We test our students religiously on Fridays at the end of semesters prior to entrance to kindergarten, seemingly in every classroom every single day. We do this because someone somewhere has determined that testing students is important. As teachers, we often play along with the testing game. At the core, I have no problem with that. As a matter of fact, I think that in many classes we don't test enough. What? Did I just put that in print? So far in this book, I've said I don't care if my kids choose to read, and now I'm saying we need to test more often? Before you put this book down, or stop this podcast, and rattle off an email to me and my publisher, let me explain a little bit more. I don't think what I'm saying is really that much of a stretch from what many believe. I'm just saying it in a way that you may not have heard before. See, six years ago, I was in my first year as a school principal. I had spent the previous three years as an assistant principal learning the ropes of managing adults and trying to inspire growth and change. But I still had much to learn. As a young 33-year-old first-year principal, I felt I had a lot to prove. I was working in a school that had stagnated in terms of student achievement. We had amazing teachers doing amazing things, but we were just not seeing the results. I was a believer and still am that the greatest way to inspire change, change is to provide great descriptive feedback. As an administrator, that meant I needed to use teacher evaluation processes as more than a means to label teachers as good or bad, satisfactory or unsatisfactory. I needed to provide a reflective lens in which each teacher could grow and develop. To this date, the single most effective evaluation I ever conducted was my first. As a new principal, I made a calculated decision to start my evaluation process with what I thought would be an easy path. I wanted to observe the teachers who had the best reputations, those whom everyone else believed were doing a great job and validate everything they were doing well. I wanted to use these teachers as guinea pigs. I thought these teachers would be a piece of cake. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. But it was the most am- in the most amazing way possible. The first observation I went on was career-changing. As a matter of fact, it was actually the inspiration for this book. The teacher I observed had her students engaged and interacting. It was student-owned collaboration and student facilitation of classroom management. The teacher's classroom was a well-oiled machine. She was doing so many things the way teacher prep programs across the country would want every teacher doing them. As I began wrapping up my 40-minute observation, during which I believed I had just witnessed a master teacher, I noticed something near the classroom door that generated a series of questions, questions that changed my perspective of teaching, assessing, and learning forever. 
When I describe this, some of you will think, really? That's it? That's not a big deal at all. But it's often in the seemingly mundane details that we begin to uncover the largest truths. In two words written on this teacher's monthly calendar, a calendar I didn't even notice until I was walking out of the room, I uncovered a reality that has changed the course of my career. See, this teacher was extremely organized. She was the envy of her peers because of her ability to have a lesson plan crafted for every day for an entire month. She had parent phone numbers on a Rolodex on her desk and had a reputation for returning all student work within 24 hours. Her organization was wonderful. That became the pivot point for all future conversations about effective teaching and learning at that school. On a bulletin board, sat just inside the door of this teacher's classroom, was an assignment calendar that listed upcoming sporting events, band concerts, homework, and field trips. She also was so organized that on this given day, she was able to write that the following Friday, I remember that this observation was on a Thursday, eight days prior to the day being described, were written two words, test day. She had planned her instruction so far in advance that she knew that her students would be what her students would be doing eight days later. As a matter of fact, I learned that she actually wrote that date on the calendar the week before, test day. Two words written on a bulletin board calendar have inspired every presentation I've made since that day. Seeing those two words set my mind racing in many directions. I look back on it now and say I had no idea what I was thinking, but I simply wanted to know more. Taking a page out of my law professor's playbook, I asked the teacher a bunch of questions during our follow-up conversations, after first complimenting her for her attention to detail and organization. I asked this great teacher, how do you know your students will be ready for a test next week? This was an innocent question, intending no judgment whatsoever, but I'm sure it came across more like asking your grandfather at Thanksgiving dinner, so tell me, why are you a Democrat? After hearing the teacher's explanation about the instruction she'll be providing to her students each of the next seven days and all the informal assessments she'd be administering as a part of each day's lesson, I asked, if you know what the kids will know, why do you need to test them? She looked puzzled. If you don't know your students will be ready, why give them a test? I was on a roll. I didn't realize at the time, but I just stumbled upon the test giver's catch-22, a series of questions whose answers only complicate the prior response. Do you give a test only when you know your students are already know it all? Or do you give a test when you don't know what the students know? If your students already have proven to you what they know, are you giving a test just because you feel like you're supposed to? Are tests given to prove something that you think you already know or to confirm a hunch? In the real world, the answer is that we give tests only when other evidence has already been confirmed. See, I have four kids, and I know a thing or two about tests. Pregnancy tests. I know that most women don't wake up every Friday, pull test kits out of their medicine cabinet, and pee on a stick just to see if they're pregnant. Now, I apologize for the crudeness of this example, but few women take pregnancy tests unless they have other cues prompting them to do so. More than likely, a woman will take a pregnancy test only if she already feels like she knows the results. The tests provide confirmation one way or another. We have too many teachers who simply open their file cabinets on Friday and tell students to take a test with no indicators letting them know it's the appropriate time, with no plan for what to do once they get the results. My wife told me that each time she took a pregnancy test, she spent three to five minutes waiting for the results, thinking of how she would tell me another child was on the way, coming up with baby names and trying to figure out if she'd be disappointed or relieved with the results either way. For her, the tests were a confirmation of a hunch predicated by other evidence that led to future action. In our classrooms, we need to stop giving tests and as a result of them label our students as got it or failing, smart or delayed, and start using tests 
to, help, to see how our students are learning and progressing and to help determine what we as a teacher can do about it. We need to stop trying to determine whether our students have memorized every word we've said or every word that they've read and start focusing on where our students are and becoming learners. Testing learning is not the same as testing for pregnancy, in which we can simply label the, the results positive or negative. Testing learning is more like measuring the growth of a child with an ultrasound and comparing that to an anticipated due date. As teachers, we help students conceive an initial thought, and our job then has to be to provide frequent and regular visits to ensure growth and vitality. If we see areas of concern, we intervene and remediate. This is a different way of thinking for many, but it's so important. We need to stop worrying about knowledge and start worrying about learning. If we value it, we test it. If our mission statements say that we are to create lifelong learners, we need to start measuring our ability to do that and stop measuring whether or not our students have memorized a bunch of text. Memorizing a spelling word does not create a person with affinity for learning. Memorizing the dates of civil war battles does not help students learn how to avoid similar conflicts in the future. We must begin to see all assessments as formative and must be willing to see all learning as a process rather than a yes or no proposition. Learning is not as simple as got it or nope. Our learning built upon prior foundations requires new understanding in order to progress. The job of a second grade teacher is not only provide seven-year-olds with a prescribed set of learning, but also to build a foundation for the learning that will occur in third grade. As parents, our job is not to create perfect kids, but to provide the building blocks for future successful adults. Teachers at every level must first embrace the process of learning and cast off the illusions that our job is to get children to simply memorize facts. Whew, it was a lot there in chapter nine, a lot to think about, a lot to resonate on, and I hope a lot to inspire and encourage debate and discussion. I hope you'll come back and join us next week um, as we look at chapter 10, Don't Label Your Box. If you haven't yet, subscribe to this podcast so that when the next episode is, is uh, broadcast, you'll be able to get it right away on your device. Listen, listen on that deck, listen on that road trip, listen with your peers. Again, this is Dave Schmidt reminding you that lasting learning is just like riding a bike. <laughs>